We're now into the second day of mourning here in the Netherlands for Peter de Vries, the investigative crime journalist. We are appalled by the apparently arbitrary killing of nine activists in simultaneous... Tonight, more bloodshed in Mexico. Another journalist killed this week in the country. Five he was known for fighting for the little guys, for trying to deny corruption. From the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, this is the Repo Effect. This is The Ripple Effect, and I'm your host, Ana Paula Oliveira. In this episode, we continue our investigation into human rights defenders, what measures are taken at the international level, and what difference do this make to the individuals on the ground. Julian Carillo was a defender of indigenous environmental rights in the state of Chihuahua, Mexico. He was killed in October 2018 after receiving several death threats for his work defending the territory of his community. The memorial project by Frontline Defenders found that in 2021, 26% of the human rights defenders killed around the world were working on issues of indigenous people's rights. Indigenous peoples make up to just 6% of the global population. There are measures in place that are supposed to protect people like Julian. In Mexico, after campaigning by activists and journalists, the government adopted the national mechanism to protect journalists and human rights defenders. But is this mechanism working? So it is a federal agency under Murray Maya from the Washington Office on Latin America. Under the Minister of the Interior responsible for providing protection measures to individuals at risk that this could include Security, cameras, bulletproof vests, bodyguards for, for at-risk individuals, sometimes relocation, so funding to relocate individuals within the country. And what we have seen in these eight years since it's been in place is the mechanism has certainly likely saved many lives, but it continues to be plagued with a lack of human and financial resources that have limited um, its ability and its capacity to do its job and do it well. This lack of resources really has hindered Mexico's efforts to provide adequate protection to people at risk. Many human rights defenders work in remote areas, often controlled by organized crime. This was the case of Julian Carillo. The mechanism staff didn't actually go to his area to do a risk assessment because the risk for them was so great. The response to threats he was facing was so slow that in the end it wasn't effective and he ended up getting killed. So certainly I need to develop better strategies to address the, the reality of defenders who are working in these very remote areas and areas that do have a strong presence of organized criminal groups. The Mexican states have a role to play. Mexico as a federal government has also state level protection mechanisms, but only about a third of Mexican states actually have their own protection units. That needs to be stood up. States need to be under pressure themselves of what are you doing to protect your own population. The state of Chihuahua actually has probably the best experience developing a contingency plan to address how do you work to prevent future attacks against human rights defenders and journalists in that state. And what is the situation in Colombia? Last time, we touched on the 2016 peace agreement between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC. Juan Papier, from Human Rights Watch, 
give us an overview of how this landmark agreement is playing out in real terms. Government authorities in Colombia have in, in recent years established a, what I would say is a very complex web of plans, policies and laws protect human rights defenders and prevent abuses against them. Some of these plans are established under the 2016 uh, peace accord with the FARC. But overall, the, the implementation of these policies has been pro forma, has been overly militarized, has normally been unsubstantive and has led to very, very limited impact in the ground. To its credit, the National Protection Unit, a unit established in 2011 to protect the people at risk, has granted individual protection measures to hundreds, really hundreds of human rights defenders in Colombia, providing cell phones, bulletproof beds, and bodyguards to many of them. But the unit faces serious budgetary constraints and other plans, other more um, collective and comprehensive plans to protect human rights defenders in Colombia have faced very, very serious shortcomings. There is also a plan, a 2019 program to protect human rights uh, defenders and other community leaders in what are termed neighborhood action committees. But the progress has been very, very limited. It entails basically some uh, meetings with human rights defenders to discuss the, um, the design of this program in the future. But there has been no impact on the ground. Overall, I would say that the plans to protect human rights defenders have relied too heavily on uh, granting cell phones, granting bulletproof vests, but other plans to protect entire communities have been implemented in a very slow and inefficient way throughout Colombia. You might be thinking now, how do people get away with these killings? Michelle Foley from Frontline Defenders give us an insight into the societal backdrop these killings take place against. It's important to note that the killing of defenders, whether by state or non-state actors, including organized criminal groups, occurs against a backdrop of generalized hostility towards activism and an accepted narrative that seeks to delegitimize the defenders and their work. And this is especially true in countries where the vast majority of the killings take place. So we're looking at Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, the Philippines, Guatemala, Honduras, India. Leaders in many of these countries have invested in creating and compounding a, a popular narrative, I suppose, that human rights defenders are anti-development, they're anti-government, they're foreign-funded, they're the puppets of foreign powers. And this narrative, I suppose, ultimately emboldens the perpetrators. Gracias. Berta Cáceres was an Honduran environmental activist and indigenous leader who campaigned against the installation of the Aquas Arcadam. These four proposed dams were to be placed along the Huacarca River on the territory inhabited by the indigenous Lenca people. Berta was central to local opposition against the dams and the company behind the plans, Desarrollos Energéticos S.A. Odessa. In March 2016, Berta was shot dead in her own home by armed intruders. Initially, police seemed to be insinuating that Berta had been killed in a crime of passion. But was this true? Roxana Altos, international human rights lawyer and scholar, 
tell us more about the attempt to construct a false narrative around Berta Cáceres' murder. The company had hired a public relations firm and, and we saw in the WhatsApp chat that we reviewed that it, it was important to the company that the murder be framed as a crime of passion because the company was seeking to preserve the project, to move forward with the project, and was concerned that if they were implicated, if the company was implicated, it would undermine their efforts to, to move forward with the project and ultimately their bottom line. The language used by politicians, police and stakeholders is incredibly important. It shapes public opinion, investigations and arguably can embolden perpetrators. Memories fade, witnesses become scared, evidence is lost. Those are all the implications of misdirecting an investigation early on. But also I think that it's public opinion. We are creatures that are swayed easily and first impressions are extraordinarily important. In Berta's case, the government's efforts, the company's efforts to frame this as a crime of passion was also an effort to influence, to control public opinion. I think what they didn't calculate was the extraordinary job Berta had done in forming transnational alliances. Uh, the strong solidarity network that she was a part of that weren't going to be influenced and swayed by their efforts to misdirect the investigation and frame the murder as a crime of passion. And it was really because of those networks, because of the extraordinary bravery of her family, of her colleagues in, in Honduras, and the solidarity networks that they had internationally, that the investigation eventually was redirected. The duty to protect human rights defenders lies with the states. And Michelle Foley from Frontline Defenders argues that states must publicly recognize the legitimacy of human rights defenders. States just need to clean up their act. They need to regularly and, and publicly acknowledge defenders and the value of their work. They need to investigate the crimes against defenders, particularly the killings, and, and end the impunity because, as we've acknowledged, the levels of impunity are so high that perpetrators can almost be guaranteed to escape justice at this stage. And where national protection mechanisms exist, they need to be properly funded so that they can become more robust and more effective. And where they don't exist, they need to be introduced. For, for other actors in the area, foreign embassies on the ground need to act as allies for defenders. The EU embassies already have a set of guidelines, so these need to be actively implemented. And, and countries that don't have these guidelines need to adopt them. Companies also have a responsibility to respect defenders under the EU guiding principles on business and, and human rights. So when threats or attacks linked to a company's activities or supply chains are highlighted to them, and these threats or attacks may well be linked to organized crime, companies need to take action in support of defenders, which I suppose too many companies have been too slow to do. And similarly, the, the international financial institutes, the IFIs, who are financing these companies and the consumers who are buying the goods have a responsibility to push for mandatory human rights due diligence in the supply chains. And then lastly, 
there's a need for more regulation of hate speech, particularly by social media companies. They need to establish a more effective and timely response to requests to take down threatening posts and threatening messages that endanger the lives of defenders. And and they need to support defenders' efforts, I suppose, to de-escalate the levels of threat. There seems to be three main routes out of the cycle of violence and impunity for human rights defenders. One, the proper allocation of resources to help to protect people. Second, the development of plans that address the root causes of this violence. Third, booster investigations of perpetrators and masterminds of killings. Until then, these brave individuals will live with the threat of violence from organized criminal interests. Join us in the next episode as we look at environmentalists and their struggles against organized crime. If you enjoy The Ripple Effect, please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.